Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and let's dive headlong into what God has been saying to us through the pen of Paul. And let's apply that to our lives this morning. So Ephesians chapter 5, once you have found that, if you would be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. And we'll start in the very first verse of that fifth chapter. And it reads like this, Therefore be imitators or followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Father, this morning we have rejoiced in the baptizing of one of your children into the fellowship. We have worshipped you through our singing and our fellowship together and through the giving of the tithes and offerings to the spreading of the gospel throughout the world and Now, Father, as we approach your throne of grace through your word, I ask that you focus our attention solely upon you and that which you would speak to our heart this morning. And may you make very little of me and very much of yourself. This we pray in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians now. This is starting our third year, and we crested over from the first three chapters. We're all about a a theology and doctrine of who Christ is and what he had done for us and and how God had worked in our life and to the point of salvation. And we moved into the fourth chapter, which started, as Paul said, the worthy walk. This worthy walk based on those things we learned in the first three chapters. Well, we moved into chapter five this year, and it starts off telling us that that worthy walk contains a component called walking in love walking in love I I think you could agree with me that what the world seeks most is love it really does but it doesn't seek that love in all the same places you see as we move into chapter 5 and we start looking at that worthy walk it started with the fact that we as his children should imitate him in each and everything that we do We should move forward imitating God through the example of Jesus Christ in our life. And and it's through that imitation of Jesus Christ that we show the world love. And it says that we are to be imitators or followers. And a matter of fact, it says we're to walk in love just as Christ loved us. Well, here's the, the, the shocking point. Here's the synopsis. Here's the ending point of the entire story. How did Jesus Christ love us? He loved us one way. Forgiveness. See, for without Jesus Christ's love, there would be no forgiveness of sins. And what was the greatest thing that Jesus Christ did, as the Bible says? One of the greatest things a man can do is lay down his life for another. And what did Jesus do? Jesus willingly stepped from the portals of heaven to come to this earth and live 33 years. Three years of that in ministry to show us, to teach us, to be an example to us of what we should be. To show us that we fall well short. Well short. 
Just as the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament were not there to save you, but to show you how short you fail of the glory of God. For Romans tells us that we have all sinned. We all have sinned. Your pastor, your mom and dad, your grandmama, you, each of us have sinned. If it wasn't for that sin, there would be no need for Jesus to leave heaven to come to this earth. But he did. He did. He did because he loved us. And how did he love us? By forgiving us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died upon a cross for our sins. That's the point you should jump out of your pew and holler hallelujah. You see, because while you were yet a sinner, Christ Jesus said, I volunteer, send me. And he came to this earth to walk a walk of love by forgiving us of our sins. Now that forgiveness is not automatic on your part. You see, the forgiveness is available. Yet you must be willing to receive that gift. As we saw Spencer this morning demonstrating to us with an outward sign of what happened inwardly, he accepted that gift of forgiveness for his sins. What is the invitation going to be when we get into the message this morning? The invitation is going to be a question. Have you ever received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for your sins? How do you do that? You do that by falling on your face before a holy God and admitting what he already knows that you're a sinner. That you have done it. It all falls on you. It's not anybody else's fault. You chose to do it. You fall on your face before him and say, I am a sinner. And thank you so much for sending Jesus Christ to die for my sins. And I receive that free gift of your son to wash my sins as white as snow. That starts that walk of love that, that Paul was writing about here in this book of Ephesians, the fifth chapter. As we moved out of those first couple of verses, we started talking about what it means to walk in love. We said first and foremost in, in that third verse that it's our actions that come to light. It says that we are supposed to be fitting as, as his children. We're to be fitting. It's kind of like it, it seems something's wrong with my closet at home. Most of my clothes seem to be getting damp and shrinking, apparently. They're no longer befitting of what they were when they were first bought. I think about that when I think about what he says. We're to be imitators and befitting in our actions, in our walls. We're, our actions should be fitting of that which Christ has done for us. He moved from there into verse 4, and he said that we are also to be thankful. So he moved from our actions to our words, our mouth. We talked about it last week when we looked in the book of James. When it said in the book of James that a, a large forest fire most often starts with a very small spark. The greatest of ships and the mightiest of winds is guided by the smallest of rudders. And James told us last week that our life is directed by the, one of the smallest members of our body, our tongue. That which we say. You know, that which we say also shows those sitting next to us in the pew and next to us at a desk at work and those we see in the grocery store, it really shows them who our Jesus is. See, when I think about that, I'm very convicted. I'm convicted about those times in my life when the person ahead of me at the, at the line at the grocery store can't read the sign that says 12 or less and they've got two carts full. And I, and I want to tap them on the shoulder and say, I know you have a hard time reading. Let me interpret this for you. Twelve. Twelve is not two buggies. I think about it when I'm driving down the road and the guy in the left-hand lane decides to make a right-hand turn in the next hundred yards and does it by taking my vehicle with him on the way out. I think about it as I get ready to say that thing I want to say to him. I think about it when my wife at home, poor, gracious, saintly Wendy, <laughs> pray for her. She has to live with me. That's all I'm going to say. But I think about it when, when I want to be sharp. I, I want to come back with a sharp retort or, or say something foolish. 
I think about it when a church member comes to me with the greatest of problems in their life as they perceive it, and I see it as very little a problem, and I answer it that way. I think about it. I think about what he says here, what he says, you know what, pastor, you just showed your wife or that church member or that person in line who your Jesus is. See, what he said is we're to be fitting in our actions, and we're to be thankful with our words. Every time you have the opportunity to give God thanks for that which he has done, you do it. And it's not just saying thank you for my lunch, thank you for my house, thank you for my lights. It's thank you for the opportunity to show this person that doesn't know Jesus Christ who you are by the way I'm going to respond to this situation. You see, the most thankfulness that you can ever give God is by being godly to those who don't know him as their Lord and Savior. Remember how Christ loved us? When we were yet sinners, and he had every right to say that which was not good about us, he chose instead to stand before the Father and said, I got them. They're mine. I took care of it. I forgave that. I died upon a cross for their sins. The next time you have the opportunity, not only with your actions, but with your words to walk in love, think about what Christ did for you. That's his point. Well, he moves from there to our third point in this particular section. He says, be reminded. He says this down in verse 5 when he says, for this you know. For this you know. How can he say you know it? Because he spent three chapters. We spent two years talking about what we know. We know what Christ has done. We know that Christ has given everything sacrificially, unconditionally. He sacrificed himself and he did it without you having to give anything to him to receive that. We know that he did it completely. Why do we know? Remember the example. It's one of my favorite when I think about the fact that he said on his knees in the garden, this cup, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But if, it's, if not, if, let your will be done. And I picture him as he crawled upon that cross and he died for our sins. That cup was filled with our sins. The wrath of God on us was in that cup. And Christ drank that cup to the very bottom, turned it upside down and slammed it on the table and said, It is finished. You see, what Christ did upon the cross is complete. There is nothing you can add. There's not enough money you can give. There's not enough people you can be good to. There's not enough old ladies to walk across the street to earn the favor of Jesus Christ. For he looked at you when you deserved absolutely nothing and said, it is finished. You see, we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of what Christ did to us. See, he talked about our actions. He talked about our mouth. Now he's talking about our mind. What is the one thing that gives us the most difficulty in this life? Our mind. You think about it. You think about the things. Even as I'm preaching right now, someone's already said he's taking too long. We're going to be late for lunch. It's already run through your mind. The devil's already slapped you beside the head with that. This one. But there's all, all the way to church this morning. You're on the way to church to worship God. How many of you are willing to raise your hand and say you had an argument before you got here? Anybody? I was riding by myself and had an argument on the way here. You just think about how your mind takes you places you don't want to go. What is Paul telling us? Let your mind, take hold of your mind, grasp a hold of that which God has given you and place your remembrance in what Christ has done, not what the devil wants you to know. He's saying grab a hold. You see, the lack of love demonstrates the lack of God. Your understanding of what Christ has done shows up in your love towards others as well as towards God. 
I think about 1 Corinthians. Just back a couple of books to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter five, verse whenever he wrote, you would have thought I'd have wrote down the right one. First Corinthians chapter five. I'm just gonna summarize it for you. I wrote down the wrong verse in my notes. He says, Never forget the ones who partake of this kind of behavior, because this kind of behavior of fornication, this kind of behavior of immorality, this kind of behavior of all those things that, that the world does, those things of, of uh, fornication, covetousness, uh, all those things of the sexual immorality, all those things of the thoughts, all those things come into your heart and invade your mind. And when they invade your mind, the love of God exits your mind. And I love how God works. He just placed it on my heart, that verse. It's in verse number 9 of Ephesians chapter, of Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, I write to you in my epistle not to keep company with the sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly do not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetousness or extorters or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetousness or an idolater or a rivaler or a trunker or an extortioner, not even to eat with that person. For what have I to do with judging those who also are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away yourselves from the evil person. See, that list that he had just given us in the uh, third, in the fourth verse of Ephesians, what he was writing in Corinthians, he says, I tell you, I write this epistle to you to stay away from those, but I'm not talking about those that are outside in the world. You see, for those outside in the world need to see the love of Christ, he's saying, be careful who you make friends with inside the body. Be careful. He's pointing out to us, reminding us that within our mind, even within those who sit within the church, there are those who hold to, as he said, sexual immorality, covetousness, idolatry, rivaler, a drunkard, or an extortioner. He's saying, separate yourself from those, yet not from those in the world, for they need the gospel. He's saying that there is a certain inheritance that is ours in this body, he tells us in Ephesians. He's saying there in Ephesians, in that fifth verse of the fifth chapter, he says this, For this you know, no fornicator, no unclean person, no covetous man, no idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. When I think of that word inheritance... And he's reminding us to remember that which Christ has done and that which we are, that which we have. I think about this inheritance. But because of what God has done for us, we've inherited all that is God's. You know, we walk through tough times in our life. We walk through things we don't understand. We walk through things that we question God as to why it happens. Just this week, I've been 
involved with three families that have come home uh, with family members on hospice care. Two of the three have passed away this week. It's difficult as a pastor to sit at the feet of a family and explain to them why God has done what he has done. It's not for me to judge God's choices. I know God is perfect and his will is perfect. And it says in his word, which I believe from cover to cover, that that which he does for me, for you, for his children is done for our good. Sometimes the things done for our good hurt. Hurt mightily. You think about the number of times that you've had to have surgery or something done on your body to repair your body. It hurt mightily until it healed. God does things on his own time for his own reasons, but he does it for his own glory, which is the only reason we're still here. And when he tells us that we have this inheritance, we can hold firmly to the fact that we have inherited everything that is his. Sometimes it means the pain that Jesus Christ suffered on our behalf. For we as Christians will be persecuted. There's not a doubt in my mind. You see it in the news today. Yet we also inherit those great things. Matter of fact, just back at the very first of Ephesians, he said this to us in uh, in the very first of Ephesians, whenever he was talking about this this, uh, inheritance, as he was explaining to us that we had an, an inheritance in him, that everything that was his was ours, he got to telling us about this particular inheritance and the fact that Christ was our cornerstone. He pointed out to us that that Christ was our peace. He pointed out to us that, that we were bought by his blood, that all those things were ours because of what he had done for us. He pointed all those things out to us. And, and then in the first chapter, in the 15th verse, he said this, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. He goes on to say, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come and he put all things all things under his feet And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. You see, we have Jesus as our inheritance of salvation, as our Savior. We have the power, Paul says, in us, the same power that raised the dead, raised Jesus from the dead. He says we have heaven as our home. For Jesus has gone to sit at the right hand of the Father, giving us hope that one day we will be in the presence of Almighty God in a place called heaven. He also tells us that we have God as our Father. I don't know about you, but I need a good Father. I've got a great earthly Father, but there's only so much my earthly Father can do for me. My heavenly Father can do all things. And to think that He is our Father... But he also tells us here, we have the riches that are in heaven. The Bible tells us that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. 
that all things are his. He stepped out into complete emptiness and spoke into existence all that is. And all that he spoke into existence is his. And Paul goes on to tell us by faith in Jesus Christ, placing our faith in him and him being our Lord and Savior, we inherit all those things that are God's. So he says, be reminded, be reminded. But then he goes on in that fifth chapter, in the sixth and seventh verse, to tell us that we are to be certain. So he's spoken to us about our actions. He's spoken to us about our tongue. He's spoken to us about our mind. And now he gets straight to the heart of the matter. For he says, be certain. Be convinced in your heart of that which God has done. Be certain that what God says in his word is true. Be certain that God has saved you. Be certain that he's promised to keep you and there's nothing that can take you from the palm of his hand. Be certain that you will not experience the wrath of God on the sin in your life. See, there's a lot of folks who say they've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And they're scared God's going to zap them at any minute for a sin in their life. When Jesus took the cup, it was full to the brim with your sin. When he drank it and said it is finished, he meant it was finished. The wrath for your sin has been placed upon his body. For you to endure the wrath for your sin means your destiny is a place called hell. Let me tell you, church, if you've ever accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are saved. But it can't be from action. It can't just be with your mouth. It can't just be in your mind. It must be in your heart. You must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. That he was placed upon a cross to die for your sins. That he was placed dead in a tomb three days later found to be risen from the dead. You must believe with your heart. And then you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. See, we need to be certain of those things which God has done for us. Those things which God has said are true. Those things that God has in store for us are there. See, he makes us many promises in the Bible. But the one that is my favorite is the promise that he will never leave me or forsake me. I look around this morning and see some that need that message. They need that message because they've walked through things in their life lately. Through death and family, through different things that have gone on. They may question whether or not God's there. And that's normal. That's a normal question that comes to each of our hearts. Yet, I hold firmly to the fact that God never lies. He cannot lie or he would not be God. And he tells me he'll never leave me or forsake me. When the darkest of night falls and no stars shine, the light of God still shines in my heart because I have that promise. He says, be certain in your heart. The question arises in my mind. I see all this. Pastor, I believe all these things. How does that make a difference in those around us? For you see, this walk of love is not a walk to change us. It's the walk we should make to change the world. And what Paul was saying, knowing all these things about God, knowing all these things about Christ, the application of it in your life and how it changes your heart should cause you to walk in such love that those around you are drawn to the light of Jesus Christ. He tells us that there are Things in our life that either repel or draw people to him. One of the passages that falls on my mind, one of the books actually that falls on my mind as I think about this walk of love is the book of 1 John we're delving into on Wednesday nights. John is that disciple whom love 
who Jesus loved, the one who leaned upon his breast, the one who approaches his writing with this temperament of love. And in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 12, he says this, No one has seen God at any time. So he starts off with an emphatic that this God you cannot lay eyes on. Do we know that to be true? Sure, God said it himself. Do you remember? He hid one in the cleft of a rock and allowed him to see his hind passing. And his face shone so much he had to cover it with a veil as if he was sunburnt. But he said, no one can see me and live because of the glory of God. So he starts off with an emphatic. He goes on to say, if we love one another, notice he started off and said, no one can see God. Then he says, if we love one another. Do you see where he's headed? He says, you can't see God, but let me tell you how they can see God. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son as savior of the world. See what loving does? Loving one another testifies that God has sent his only begotten son to be the savior of the world. He goes on to say, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Well, he had said earlier that if we love each other, God abides in us. Connect those dots. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, your life confesses it and it's shown to the world in love. He goes on to say, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. He says in verse 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Are you scared of the day that you stand to see your Savior face to face? Are you a little nervous at what he's going to say? You know, we see examples when he says there are those that come. And he says, depart from me because I do not know you. They have done all those things that the others that knew him did. Yet in their heart, they never turned their life over to Jesus. He never became Lord and Savior. And they stand before him and he says, he looks them in the eye and says, depart from me. I have never known you. Your place is in the lake of fire. There will be those who come in that manner. Does that scare you this morning? Even if you know you come and he looks at you, he's going to say, come on in. Your mind, the thought that still comes to my mind is, how many crowns will I have because of that which I have done for Jesus that I can lay at his feet to show him how much I appreciate his love? What he is saying, what John is saying is, if we are filled with his love and that love overflows to those around us, both in the church and outside the church, so that they come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, you have no fear of judgment. You can stand boldly before Christ. And when he says to you, enter, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. He goes on to say, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him. Because he first loved us. Why are we to love the world around us? Because Christ loved us when we were unlovable. 
Why? Why are we to turn the other cheek? Why are we to take the only shirt off our back and give it to them? Why are we to put ourselves out so that others, others can be better? Why are we to spend our energy investing in the lives of others? Because Christ first loved you. See, we are to be filled with love because of that which Christ has done, did for us when we were yet unlovable. He loved us with his very life. I also think about one other passage, and we'll close with this. 1 Peter. 1 Peter hits the nail on the head when it comes to this love and what effect it has in the world around us. There are so many people that we have ministered to through this church in the last few years that come up to me and make comments such as, Pastor, I appreciate it, but I just don't understand. Why would you come? Why would you help? And they come just overflowing with gratitude, but yet at the same time not quite grasping. It's an opportunity for that love to flow out on them. And how should that love affect them? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says this. But the end of all things is at hand. I don't think there's any greater time in the history of the world that that statement could be true than now. Look around you. Look at the things that are happening. There is nothing left to be done other than blow the trumpet for Jesus to come back. There is nothing left. There is no other sin to raise its ugly head. There is no other war to be fought. There's no other amount of hatred that can be dumped on this world. The only thing left is for God to look at his son and say, you paid the price for him, go get him. When could it happen? Before this sermon's finished. When could it happen? Before you lay your head on the pillow tonight. What he's saying to us right here is the end, the end, the finish, the completeness of everything is right at hand. He says, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Take serious the fact that the end is here. He says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. He says, if you really believe, if you really believe that the end is near, what are you going to do? You're going to pray. And out of that prayer is going to come love. Love for one another. And why? For he says, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Just loving someone does not forgive their sins. Connect that love to what he said in Ephesians when he said we're to love as Christ loved us. How did Christ love us? He died upon a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. How do we love at the end? How do we love in uh, knowing that the end is at hand? We love by sharing the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to the world. By telling them that the end is near and their only hope is placed in a God-man named Jesus. By standing with boldness and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone who is headed to a lake of fire. By being willing to be ridiculed, by being willing to be shunned, by being willing to be laughed at because we want to love in the same manner with which Christ loved us. Unconditionally, whether that person returns love to you or not, sacrificially, it should hurt. And in completeness, with the whole gospel, not withholding a thing. Telling them 
Christ loved them so much he crawled upon a cross for their sins. For he says, we're to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles or the mouth of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory, dominion forever and ever. And he puts a resounding amen. He says, if you want to walk in love, if you want to understand what it means to walk in love, walk in such a way that those around you have their sins forgiven. Let the love that you feel from Jesus Christ so flow out of you that other people come to be forgiven because they see who this Jesus is. We're the walk just as Christ loved us completely with everything that we are. How did he love us? He loved us by giving up his place at the throne of an almighty God. He set aside everything it was to be God and put on these wretched human body. He left the place that there have been thousands of songs written about. Millions of saints over the years have looked forward to the day that they'll be in a place called heaven. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would dare I would dare say that your desire is to be in that place. The place that it tells us that the streets are paved with gold, the water runs as crystal, that the gate is made of one gigantic pearl, that there is no night because the glory of God is the daylight of that place. That you'll see your Savior face to face. The place that there will be no more tears. There will be no more death. There will be no more sin. It's the place we all long for. It is this glorious, glorious place. Yet Christ, because of your sin and his love, left that place. He left that place for you. I firmly believe he would have done it if there had only been one of us. When God looked around all of heaven to find the sacrificial lamb to pay the penalty for the sin, I believe Jesus stood up from his seat and said, Father, here I am, send me. He came to be beaten so badly that he was not even recognizable. He was nailed to a cross. He was spit upon by those that he loved. He was ridiculed by the ones that he had came to save. We long for a place called heaven, and Jesus longed for us to be there. And he made a way by coming to this earth to die for our sins. Does that message ring true with your heart this morning? See, if it rings true with your heart, then you should recognize the fact that there are those who don't know that gospel. Do you appreciate what Christ did for you? Do you love him because he loved you? How does he tell us, me, you, the church, how does he tell us that that should make a difference in both our life and the world? He says that the outward sign of the magnitude of what Christ did inwardly in us shows up in our walk of love. If you have little love for those around you, you have a little understanding of what Christ did for you.
If you would rather share the gospel than sleep, I think you might have a small grasp of what Christ did. Because in all reality, the end is near. The end is near and the time is short. For some here this morning, you may not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That walk of love starts with you understanding what Christ did. For others, you may have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you could definitely say to God that your walk has been less than a walk of love. The end is near, both for those who don't know Jesus Christ and for those who are not walking as they should in love that do know Jesus Christ. The end is near where both of those categories will see Jesus face to face. The time is near. The time is short for you to show others the love of Christ. My question to you this morning is, what is your walk showing the world? I'm not asking how many times you go to church. I'm not asking how many times you've been to revival. I'm not even asking if you've walked an aisle and been baptized. I think you figured out in two plus years of me being here, I don't put a whole lot of faith in some aisle walks and water baptism. Why? Because when they came up out of that water, they went back in that world, their life didn't look like what Paul just told me. And what Paul said from the heart of God is if that and that meant something, the walk out there will be a walk in love that will cause others to want to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Church, I tell you, the time is near. I think Gabriel's licking his lips. He will blow the horn shortly. Christ will return. You may have your eternity settled, but do you love God enough that you're going to help your neighbor settle their eternity? See, that's the walk of love. I call you this morning in invitation. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you come. I'll explain that to you. Maybe this morning you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but you believe that you have fallen short. You have done as the church of Ephesus, which this letter was written to. You have lost your first love. You haven't lost your salvation, but you have lost your love of that which saved you. This morning you come. Forgiveness is here. As he tells us in 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins if we'll just come and ask. Maybe this morning you're a church member that's tired You're tired because you've been sharing that gospel. You're tired because you've been loving others. You ask Jesus for the strength because he says that through the power that raised Jesus from the dead, he can do all things through you, even in your tiredness. This morning, will you tell God? Will you tell God you love him? And will you show God you love him through your walk of love when you leave this place? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.